You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. So I'm reading Mark, Mark, Mark chapter 12, verse 13 to 17 on page 1017 in the Blue Bibles. So flip to that. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God's. And they're amazed at him. We're going to carry on from verse 18 to verse 27. Then the Sadducees, who say, there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third, In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. And let me add my welcome to Ralph. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the leaders here at City Church. And it's my privilege this afternoon to take you through um, the passage that was uh, wonderfully read uh, by the two lads. So do keep Mark chapter 12 open, and why don't I pray as we begin? Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon recognising that you are the creator of the universe and you know all of the details of our lives. And so it is with trepidation that we come before you. Perhaps an excitement, perhaps a slight quivering in our own hearts as we know that the God who made us and knows us better than anyone else is about to speak to us as his word is opened And so we do ask that by the power of your spirit, that you would bring us words of comfort to those of us who are brokenhearted. And may you bring us words of challenge to those of us who are going in the wrong direction. But we ask with every confidence and anticipation 
that none of us will leave this place this evening unchanged. Amen. Now, when I was, um, when I was at school, there were lots of different ways that you could pick teams. Come back to, with me to the kind of PE or the games lessons. That is a shudder for some of you, but come back. Come back in time in your memories for that. Because you remember, don't you, four games or PE, or it might have been even in the playground or whatever it was, there was always the task of picking teams. There was always the task of picking teams. Now, some of us, we would have loved it. Some of us, we would have hated it. Now, there were three main ways that you could pick teams uh, when you were at school. Certainly when I was at school. The first one was, it was called uh, random numbers or numbers. And basically, you all got in a huddle, you all gave each other different numbers, and then the two team captains would randomly pick the numbers. And if your number was called, that was the team you joined. The second option was odds and evens. Dead easy, kind of self-explanatory. If you were odds, you were on this team. If you were on evens, on this team. But perhaps the worst, you feel the shudder, can't you? You know, there's some PDSD, isn't there, about this one. The worst was when they chose you, the team captains, from the best down to the worst who were picked last. I wonder where you were on that spectrum. I wonder where you were. Were you at the top end, the best players, or were you the ones at the very end, the dregs where you were picked? You see, the best and the worst, however it was done to pick teams, many of us probably thought the brilliant thing about leaving school and being a grown-up is you don't have to be picked. You get to pick the team that you're on. You get to pick the team that you're on. But the thing is, it's not as much fun as we probably thought. Pretty much every single day as grown-ups, we're asked to either pick this team or this team, to give our allegiance to this cause or this person. You know, if it was this summer, were you going to be on Team Barbie or Team Oppenheimer? I don't know which one you chose. If you're kind of following kind of the ins and outs of social media, were you Vardy or were you Rooney? Those of you more politically minded, uh, are you going to vote left or or are you going to vote right? And tragically, seriously, what we're embroiled in right now is the culture, are you Israel or are you Gaza? Got to pick a side. Got to pick a side. But the, the real life experience of picking sides, well, it's actually very, very messy, isn't it? What if you realise when you're meant to pick a side that actually you're bang right there on the fence? Or what if you thought you had picked one side but actually when you looked at your life you realised actually your allegiance belonged to the other side? Well, in this passage, Jesus is asked to pick a side. And as he answers... He answers in a way that will turn the questions on its absolute head and he will ask every single one of us in this auditorium and any one of us who are watching online, he will ask you, what team are you really on? I mean, deep down. What team do you really belong to? 
I've got two points this afternoon, and the first one's this. Pick a side, Herodians versus Jesus. Pick a side, Herodians versus Jesus. Now, you know from this passage that it's going to be a really tasty one, don't you? When the very first sentence talks about they've laid a trap for Jesus. Because we're told that two groups lay this trap. It's a group called the the Herodians, and then it's a group called the Pharisees. And they seem to have joined forces to trip Jesus up. Now, when it says trap, in order to make sense of what type of trap they're talking about, you've got to actually go back in history. You've got to do some research. You've got to go back to the very, very first Christmas. We had our Christmas launch last week. I hope you're coming. 10th of December, shameless plug. But if you go back to the very first Christmas, um, the very first Christmas experience, you know, Mary and Joseph, you know, baby to be pregnant, looking for an inn, born in a manger. They're going to Bethlehem, Why? Because the emperor at the time had said that everyone had to go back to their hometowns uh, where they were born in order to register for an empire, Roman empire-wide census. You've got to go back then to make sense of this passage. You see, back when um, this census was called on that very first Christmas, there was a big social influencer and he, he had a following, a little bit like Jordan Peterson. And he kicked up such a fuss that he said, look, this government census by the Romans was a slippery slope to high taxation and the slavery of the Jews. And therefore, if you were a God-fearing, well-respected Jew, you would have nothing to do with paying any Roman taxes whatsoever. He said, pure bloods, if you're a real follower of God, you wouldn't even touch the coin. Well, the Romans responded to this fellow with the gentle diplomacy of a John Wick film. And it turned into an absolute bloodbath massacre. And so the question to Jesus in our passage, all those years later, is Jesus, you've got to pick a side. You've got to reveal your hand. Should we or should we not pay our taxes to Caesar? Can you, can you see the trap? Now, the tax that we're talking about, the poll tax as we have it written in, in our Bible translations here, was for every single person in the empire. And the coin that they had to give was a denarius. It was the equivalent of about 14 days or so wages, but more significantly, blazoned right across this Roman coin was a picture of the emperor, and it said Pontiff Maximus, which basically meant Caesar is a demigod. He is high priest of all. That's what the coin said. In other words, Caesar, like a demigod, is the intermediary between man and God. That's how important he is. That was on the coin for taxation. Can you see why this is more than just political? This actually is all about spiritual allegiance. Pick a side. 
You see, if Jesus said, as a response to the Herodians and the Pharisees, look, don't touch the coin, the Herodians, who love the Romans, would have called in the authorities immediately and had Jesus arrested as a terrorist. But if Jesus turned around and said, look, there's, there's no problem with the coin, there's no problem with the coin, the Pharisees would have declared that Jesus had as much spiritual credibility as a white-suited prosperity preacher. And they would have said, have nothing to do with Jesus. So they turn to Jesus and they say, look, who are you, Jesus? Which side are you on? Pick a team. Pick a team. And Jesus responds in our passage, with a mic drop firework response. Do you see it? Look with me at verse 16. The idea here is whose image is on the coin. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Meaning this. Look, fulfill your tax obligations to the Romans and give the emperor back the coin with his face on it. But, but as every human being is in the image of God, fulfill your obligations to your creator and worship him with all of your life. That's what Jesus was saying here. And there are two levels, I think, of application for us to think through. There's a kind of surface application of what Jesus is saying here. And then there's a slightly deeper one. Let me do the surface one first. And I want to kind of describe it by cast your mind to your passport. Cast your mind to your passport. It's particularly true if you've if you're, uh, got a British passport, but I think it's true for any passport you have. But if you have a British passport, what you will read in the beginning of your passport, in very beautiful and flowery and very formal and serious language, you will see this message at the very beginning of your passport. It says this. His Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State, serious, isn't it? Serious. Requests and requires in the name of His Majesty all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely without let or hindrance and to afford the bearer, that is the one who has the passport, such assistance and protection as may be necessary. You see, the expectation is, the expectation is that the passport holder is offered protection wherever they go in the world, not because that they're a nice person, not because that they're a polite person, not because they're going to kind of reduce their carbon footprint in your country or anything else like that. No, no, no. You're told, protect this person because they are under the protection of the British state. And I guess the surface application is Christians should pay their obligations to the state that offers them protection. And there's lots you could describe what that protection means, but that's the basic idea here. Therefore, here's an application for you. We should neither, if we're Christians, be siphoning off our money 
to offshore bank accounts to avoid the taxman as much as we shouldn't, which I think is more likely for us as a group, well, taking cash in hand for work that we do and avoiding the financial, the formal financial challenge, um, channels so that we can pocket a little bit more. But just like Caesar was not God or high priest that he claimed to be, our allegiance as Christians to the state must submit ultimately to what God teaches. That has to come first, what God teaches. Therefore, as Romans 13 verses 1 to 2 says, obey the government, for God is the one who has put it there. That is true. And that is something that Christians need to pay attention to. But, but, there is a place for believers to protest and to lobby against state responsible injustice. There's a place for Christians to do that. And there is even, I think, a place for civil disobedience when the state stops you from doing something that your creator, as described in scripture, has specified that you should do, or where the state forces you to do something that scripture, that God himself says that you shouldn't. However, and let me be really clear on this one, a Christian has to be very careful, very careful and very thoughtful and very prayerful about making that discernment for that type of decision. But I think the deeper application for those of us here at City Church in the auditorium or watching online and particularly knowing that you guys, you are a law-abiding lot. I know that. I know that. I think the deeper application is, have you claimed to have picked Team Jesus when actually you're on the side of the Herodians? What do I mean? Well, look, the Herodians had no problem with looking at their kind of official documents and payslips and seeing that they were upstanding citizens of the empire because they had paid their taxes in full. They had no problems with that. But they had no allegiance to the creator God of the Bible. That was the Herodian position. Good citizens, absolutely. But we do not give any allegiance to God. You see, the Herodians, for those of you who don't know, they were kind of like, um, imagine a sugar-infused Hello magazine, yeah? They were a gossip central, this, um, this particular group of people. You see, they belonged to this group who were led by Herod, who was king at the time. And Herod Antipas who was this king, where the Herodians get their name from, he was filthy rich. And one day he went to Rome to visit his family who were facing really hard times. And in a move that Shakespeare would have envied, he has an affair with his sister-in-law, a lady called Herodosia. And 
she persuades him to ditch his own wife and they run off into the sunset together. But this family and the culture of the Herodians, they lurch from one disaster to another with absolutely tragic consequences. At a drunken party, um, his stepdaughter performs a sexually provocative dance and he is so led by his desires that Herod ends up murdering John the Baptist. You see, the marker of being a Herodian, a marker of being on the Herodian team is that you are an absolutely law-abiding citizen. You even observe outward religious practices. But you are utterly led by your desires. Utterly led by your desires. That's what you have ultimate allegiance to. You want it, you pursue it. You desire it, you buy it. You hate it, you will self-medicate it. If you're not feeling it, you will drop it. Whatever your desire says, you do. That was the Herodian culture. That was their position. And whether it's relationships, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whatever it takes in the moment to obey your desires, your obedience is absolutely unwavering. That was the Herodian position. You see, it is easier, certainly in our culture, to give your allegiance to the state, even if you are an absolute anarchist, than it is to give your allegiance to God and submit every thought, every word, and every action through the filter question of, what would my creator God think of that? Look, let me put it like this. There are loads of people I really admire at City Church, but there is a particularly special admiration that I have for those of you who come regularly, who struggle with depression. Now, I admire you precisely because despite every instinct, every desire, every feeling that's telling you to withdraw, to pull back, to stay in bed. Don't go to church and be amongst the community of God's people. Despite hearing that, deep down, you refuse to obey. You refuse to obey that voice because your ultimate allegiance belongs to your God and your creator. And he says, it is best for you to be here amongst the community of God's people and to sit under the word of God. But I guess the question is, how does a person grow that level of obedience? If you're gonna pick team Jesus over here, how do you actually go all in? Because that's what we're talking about. And that's the challenge that Jesus is giving to the Pharisees and the Herodians. How do you go all in in allegiance? your God. Well, I think that our second and final point is, is going to be helpful for us. So come with me to that one. Point number two, pick a side. The Sadducees versus Jesus. Now, Mark, who, who wrote this gospel, he places in this passage another story, another story of Jesus facing a dastardly trap. 
It's another story where Jesus is asked to pick a side. But this time, it's a group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, well, they were a group who you would describe, they're part of the establishment. They're high achievers. They're like the top 100 graduate jobs type of candidates. They're they're, they're kind of sourdough-loving, National Trust card-carrying types. They are the Sadducees. And these guys had a particularly different belief to the Pharisees. You've got the Sadducees and you've got the Pharisees. You see, the, the, the Pharisees were a little bit more kind of like your edgy, street-smart, religious fanatic. The Sadducees were your kind of conservative establishment high achievers. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You know, if, if your mindset is like, earn the kind of wealthy financial nest egg, make sure your pension pot is turned up to max, uh, you know, kind of make sure that you've cashed in with your golden handshakes, hashtag uh, living your best life now. Well, it all kind of fits together if you don't believe that there is a life to come. Because if this is all you've got, got to cash it in now and enjoy it, right? Well, these Sadducees, they throw an absolute humdinger of a riddle at Jesus to try and trip him up. Look with me at verses 19 to 23 in your Bibles. They tell Jesus a hypothetical story. And this hypothetical story is most likely, according to kind of the sources at the time, it would have been quite a familiar one. As familiar as me telling you the story of Cinderella. Everyone kind of knows the story about this woman who marries all of these brothers. And we're told this story of this unfortunate woman who marries a guy, and then this guy dies, and so she marries his brother, and this goes on for seven times. Now, I I think actually from a kind of 21st century Western perspective looking at this particular story, I would view this woman with great suspicion. All of these deaths of husband, there's more going on here than a Scooby-Doo film, right? But that's not the point of this, so don't get distracted. Jewish law allowed for a widow to marry her husband's brother, as a means of ensuring that the widow didn't get thrown into poverty. It was allowed within Jewish custom. And so the Sadducees, they see this as a perfect riddle to get Jesus and to prove that the idea of life after death is ridiculous, an illogical fallacy. So you can imagine the scene, can't you, where they're challenging Jesus and they're saying, look, Jesus, you have no compassion to this woman who's, you know, gone through so much grief, loss, bereavement. Who is her real husband in the afterlife, Jesus? Have some compassion. Pick a side. Are you Sadducees or are you Pharisees? So what would Jesus say? Well, Jesus... Jesus dismantles them like a toddler playing with a Jenga tower. Do you see that? Look at me at first at verse 25. He draws back the curtain of heaven as only one who has been to heaven could do. And he declares, there is no marriage in heaven. Whoa. 
In fact, he says, people will live in perfect relationship with everyone else, just as the angels do. And this would have been very controversial for the Sadducees over here, because they didn't believe in resurrection, and they also didn't believe in angels. So they're offended right across the board. It's a, it's a big, big argument against what they're saying. And secondly, Jesus, he goes to the heart of their scriptures to quote from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, which is this moment where Moses is on the mountain with the burning bush and God is talking to Moses through the burning bush. And then Jesus, with the precision of a master surgeon, reminds them that God precisely says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am. And if God uses the present tense for a bunch of guys who died hundreds of years before the burning bush moment, then the mic drop twist is all of those men are still alive. And if they're alive, it means that God has really made a way through death, turning death into a door to the life to come. Can you see the Sadducees are reeling from this? They're kind of picking up their theology from the ground like someone spilt a bag of Skittles. But, but the question for us here this afternoon is what do you make of this? What's the application for you? You see, you could go down the application that for those who are single, who would like to be married, or those who are married, who would like to be single, you could say the application is, look, don't panic, don't panic, because Jesus shifts marriage into the category of corn and bike stabilizers and bumper rails at a bowling alley, that they're all things of a temporary benefit, but they're no patch on the real thing. But if that was the application, it would probably most likely offend anyone who's single, anyone who's married, and probably everyone in between. But actually, I think the application is this. Consider how easy it is to take the side of the Herodians. Do you remember that? Be good citizens. Be good citizens. But have your greatest allegiance to your own desires rather than to God. And then I want you to consider how easy it is to say that you're with Jesus, but actually you're with the Sadducees. Because your life evidences, your life evidences that you have no expectation of the resurrection to come. What do I mean? I mean, consider this. Are you the type of person who is outwardly religious, but nothing in your life shows that you are preparing to be resurrected after you die? Perhaps your aspirations are far too limited. You have said to yourself, all I want from life, it's nothing big. I just want a nice job, a nice car, a nice house, and a nice family. Nothing wrong with that. 
None of these things are bad things of themselves, but they are the same things that the world longs for and the world has no conception of the resurrection. And the world has no conception that the best is yet to come. Now I think a resurrection-bound life, a life that's orientated not to this world but to the life to come, is a life marked really from the freedom from living the norms. I think the mark of living a life that believed in the resurrection is a life that the world would call absolutely reckless. Well, let me put it like this. Have you ever turned down a promotion to a job in another city because you're right in the middle of discipling someone here in Manchester? Ooh. Wouldn't the world consider that reckless? Have you ever considered dropping a day at work to volunteer for a charity to help the vulnerable of Manchester because like you, they also bear the image of God and yet their dignity has been stripped and stolen from them and you want to help, not in part, but with your life. Reckless from a world's perspective? Have you ever considered remaining single because you believe that God is calling you to serve him in that position? Reckless. If you're a parent, have you considered regularly teaching your children about countries around the world where to be a Christian will result in persecution and death and regularly praying for that country in the full knowledge that your children may well grow up to even visit that country and serve the people there even though it may cost them their life. Reckless from a world perspective. Allegiance to Jesus and belief in the life to come is the invitation to a radical life. It is an invitation to being in the world, but not of the world. And I guess if you're anything like me, it feels as impossible to do with joy in your heart as it would be to be invited just to wander off a cliff and fall and trust that you will survive. But what makes it possible if you are a believer to do that, to walk right off the edge, is the fact that Jesus went first. You see, Jesus went first in terms of letting go the treasures of the palace of heaven to come to earth to be one of us. Jesus went first to be prepared to be arrested, nailed to a cross and die knowing and trusting that he would be resurrected again. Jesus went first when he walked through the door of death and came out the other side to the door of life three days later from an empty tomb. Jesus went first. Which is why you and I, which is why you and I can pledge our absolute allegiance to the Lord and go wherever he calls us to.
Many years ago, back in 1952, a group of five missionaries arrived on the beaches of Ecuador. They were missionaries, they were Christian missionaries, and they believed that God had called them to do something incredibly dangerous, to meet with this tribe that had no connection really with the outside world other than killing anyone who they came across in their particular area of the Ecuadorian jungle. But these missionaries felt an allegiance to the Lord, so they went. And they worked hard to build relationship with this tribe. And things were going so well until they landed the plane on the beach in early January 1956, expecting to continue the good relation that they had with the tribe. And then out of the bushes came a whole group of men from the tribe with spears that were eight foot long and they came towards them. The men had guns but their allegiance wasn't to their feelings. The men had guns but they chose not to use them. They trusted in the allegiance to God and the truth of the resurrection And they were killed, all of them, right there on the beach. Sometime later, some incredible things happened. A number of those tribe actually became believers. But it was sometime later that the father of one of those missionaries who was killed, he had struggled with the resentment and hatred in his heart for what had happened to his son. And so he got a ticket to Ecuador to go into the jungle, to go to the tribe, to find the man who had killed his son in order to enact revenge. That is what his heart desire said that he should do. And who in the world could blame him? And it is documented that he went there. He stalked through the jungle. He went to the tribe. He even found that man who killed his son. And in the moment that every instinct in his heart said, take revenge, his allegiance was to God. And instead he chose to say this, in the name of Jesus, I love you. And he embraced him. Jim Elliott, who was one of those missionaries who died, who gave his full allegiance to following the God of the Bible, and deeply believed in the truth of the resurrection from the dead, famously said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Have you picked a team? I wonder which side you'll choose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that we have not given our allegiance to the one who's made us, the one who cares so deeply for us. And we are so sorry. But we have one in the Lord Jesus whose death on the cross means not only we are forgiven and not only are we welcome to you, but the hope of resurrection, the hope that the best is yet to come in the life to come is given freely to us and that changes everything. Father, help us to live not as Sadducees or Herodians, 
but those who are following Jesus, who went first, wherever he may lead us to go. Amen.